It's time for WAKR's This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. This Week in Tech is brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton, your home for copiers, printers, and supplies. This week, cutting-edge medical technology at two world-class hospitals in our area, Akron Children's Hospital and the Cleveland Clinic. We'll hear from Dr. George Mushler from the Cleveland Clinic, where he's focused on researching stem cell therapies that can help regenerate bone and tissue, and from the research director of Akron Children's Hospital's Spine Center, pediatric surgeon Dr. Lorena Flocari. And she tells us they just rolled out some promising new technology designed to make it easier and safer to operate on children. We just opened a brand new operating room that was designed and created specifically for spine surgery. And so with it came some new technology that we're really excited to implement. Um, so the first is something called Enview, and it's an image guidance system specifically designed for pediatric spine surgery to make surgery safer, more accurate and faster, and it's ultra-low-dose radiation. So most of the spinal navigation systems that currently exist require a, a CT scan, which has really high radiation. So we don't like using that for our pediatric patients when possible. And so this new technology is one-twelfth the radiation of the current technology that we had for guidance of our implants during surgery. Um, and it's also a multi-use function so that we not only can use it to guide our implant placement, but we can use it to verify placement and do final images at the end. So it's really incredible technology that's a very powerful tool and should be safer for our patients and also improve outcomes. What does it look like? How does it work exactly? The neat thing is it looks like a normal x-ray machine in the OR. So it's very small, which makes it a lot more efficient to use. And it does not look like a robot. It just looks like an x-ray machine. But it has this multi-beam capacity with the radiation that it does use to basically create a three-dimensional image of the spine from what previously was two-dimensional technology. And then that provides a three-dimensional picture of the spine on a screen. And then our surgical tools and instruments merge with that. So we can see real-time what we're doing on a three-dimensional model. If I were standing by your side at the operating table, like we were on Gray's Anatomy. And mm -hmm. uh, would you be using an actual old school physical scalpel or would you be using a robotic kind of operation? How would that work? We would be right up next to the patient. So some robotic tools that exist for other types of surgery, the surgeon is sitting in the corner guiding the robot. And that's not what this is. We are hands-on directly next to the patient, and our tools are linking to an image that we're looking at on a screen. So we have screens that come down on both sides of the patient. We do all of these surgeries with two attending surgeons, and so we're both looking across from us at the screen at where our tools are real-time on this three-dimensional spine model. I see. So if I was you 
and the scalpel or the other instrument I was using, and I was manipulating it, is is this scalpel connected by electrodes to the imaging screen to help you guide it better? Is that how that works? Yeah, there's these little reference balls that basically connect via a camera to the navigation system. And so there's a reference frame that we put on the patient and then Using those reference balls on our tools, it links to the image that is connected by the reference frame to the patient. Okay, so it's a wireless connection then, as opposed to like having a cord out from it, which obviously that would be a problem. It would be unwieldy, and also it probably would be very unsanitary, right? So, correct. Yes, it's a wireless kind of an electronic connection so that we can track where we are real time. That's excellent. So I would imagine that in really small spines, which is what we're talking about, we're talking about kids what like ages four through 14 or younger or older? Yeah, about 80% of the surgeries that we do for scoliosis are in children aged 10 to 18. So in that adolescent age range, but There are children that have infantile forms of scoliosis as well as juvenile. So we also will use this in children much younger than age 10. Okay. So for people who don't really understand what scoliosis is, can Mm -hmm. you explain what it is and how you get it? Are you just born with it or is it something that can develop as a result of, say, some sort of an infection or virus or something? About 80% of the scoliosis that we do is what we call idiopathic. And that means we don't have a specific cause for it. It typically comes on in adolescence. There have been some genetic markers that have been linked. And so about 30% of our patients do have a positive family history where they inherited this condition. But there are some other forms of scoliosis that can be caused by something such as a neuromuscular condition or a congenital anomaly that some children are born with a vertebra that isn't shaped right. And so what scoliosis is, is curvature of the spine. And it's a three-dimensional twisting of the spine that causes the entire trunk to twist with it. So why we care about it is that later in life, we are concerned that it could cause pain, it could cause issues with the lungs and with breathing and with overall alignment and posture. So it's a lot easier, safer, with much better outcomes to treat it when adolescents and children are young, as opposed to waiting until later in life. I would think when you're young, the bones would be really, you know, small and fragile. Explain to me why it's easier then to do it with children. So children have remarkable healing potential. So they heal substantially faster than adults do and also better than adults do. And so the recovery time is much shorter in a young patient as opposed to an adult. And then also the spine tends to get stiffer over time. And so as an adult, you would have to be doing more invasive, more surgery to get the spine straighter, which creates more risk as well. So when you're young, the spine is still really flexible so we can manipulate it into a much straighter alignment. And a lot of children too with scoliosis don't need surgery. And so we really only treat the really severe curves with surgery. And there's a lot of good non-operative 
ways that we can treat scoliosis as well. So a lot of children who are still growing, we can treat them with a back brace and that can keep the curve from getting worse and hopefully avoid the need for surgery at all. So the earlier we can see these patients, as soon as there's any signs of a curve developing, we like to see them and then we can initiate non-surgical treatment to hopefully avoid any need for surgery for the rest of their lifetime. So this particular imaging device, what did you call it again? Enview. Enview. So could this Enview be used for adults as well for other kinds of spinal surgery? It could be. It's new technology and it was really designed with pediatric patients in mind since the radiation issue is a much bigger deal when you're younger to try to limit as much exposure as we can in in pediatric patients. And of course, that would be great for adults too. So I anticipate that the technology will spread in advance to include adult spine surgery in the future. But I think it still remains to be seen exactly all the potential uses of this. We're also hoping that we can use it for non-spine purposes too. So for lower extremity or hip surgery, I see a lot of potential value and use when we want that high precision and accuracy for our surgeries. Okay, great. Yeah, because I was trying to think about what the big selling points, you know, the major points are, and certainly for children, that low dose radiation. But I was thinking in terms of that precision and accuracy, like I had a friend who's an adult, quite a bit older, and had a really serious spine operation a few years ago. I mean, really, really big deal. Mm-hmm. And if they would have had something like this, it's possible that they would have been able to see things more clearly. I guess that's what I was thinking, that they would have possibly been able to target their surgery in a much more accurate way and maybe lead to less pain or a better outcome. I'm not sure, but I, I'm just wondering if that's possible. Yeah, I definitely think that in today's day and age, more and more spine surgeons are using some sort of AI or navigation or robotic technology to make placement of implants safer and more accurate when that precision is is vital for a good outcome. We looked at a lot of different types of this technology and we trialed some in a lab and we really did a lot of research and most of the technology that's available for adults right now does require a full radiation CT scan. And so we were so excited to learn that this provides the same degree of accuracy and precision, but at one twelfth the radiation. So that was really exciting for us for pediatric patients. That's great. So going back to when you do these surgeries for scoliosis, you had mentioned something about implants. Do you always put an implant in someone's spine to straighten it out when they have this curvature from the scoliosis, or is there something else that you do that doesn't involve an implant? We can use some casting techniques. That's mostly reserved for children less than age five, where we can do a series of casts that we do with traction to try to straighten the spine without any incision. That's not quite as a effective or as well tolerated for older children. So typically the mainstay is surgery with some sort of implant. And so a spinal fusion is really the gold standard for surgical treatment of scoliosis, and that requires rods and screws. 
There is some new fusionless technology that we now offer as well, where instead of a rigid rod, it's a it's called a tether where it allows some motion of the spine. So there's really strict indications that we're using for that of, of which patients are candidates. But I expect that that will have growing popularity in the future as that technology gets more refined to avoid fusion when possible. Right. Because I've heard when people have had fusions, people I've known and people I've heard about, that they may need to get more surgery again in the future because it doesn't always necessarily last forever. And not everybody can tolerate the rods and whatnot. So I was just kind of wondering about advances in that type of surgery to make it more likely that someone will have a good result. Is getting the placement the key or is it the materials the key or is it kind of all of the above? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually there is some additional new technology that we also just implemented when this new operating room went live. And that is to better restore a patient's ideal alignment. We think that the closer your spine is to anatomic alignment and motion, the better long-term where there's less wear and tear on the adjacent levels. And so number one, if you can avoid a fusion and keep some motion there, then we think that that will be helpful in the future. We don't have very good long-term outcome studies yet, just because the fusionless surgeries are newer technology. We hope and expect that that will lead to longer lasting results, but I think a there's a lot of active research going on for that. And then the other component is restoring a patient's normal alignment. And so we just recently implemented patient-specific custom rods. And what we do is we get preoperative x-rays outpatient, and then that is sent out to the company that makes our rods. And they actually make a custom rod that is designed for the patient to restore their normal anatomy. And so that's another thing that we're really hoping and expecting will improve long-term outcomes. Because if, if we can restore their normal alignment, we think that long-term the results will be more lasting and, and more natural to avoid those issues of problems above and below where we fused. Right, right. And I'm also wondering, what about... 3D printing and using like stem cells that are 3D printed to, to make like a custom kind of rod of something that was actually made of their own tissue out of stem cells. Is that possible? Yeah, I think there's a lot of active research being done in 3D printing and stem cells and more biologically friendly materials. So I'm really excited to see things that will come on in the future, and we're just trying to stay on top of all the new technology available to really provide the, the best options for our patients. Now, with that in mind, I talked to Dr. George Mushler from the Cleveland Clinic, where he actually specializes in research into bone and cell regeneration using stem cells. I'm a physician at the Cleveland Clinic. My specialty is in orthopedic surgery, clinically. My background is in musculoskeletal oncology, treatment of tumors that involve the musculoskeletal system, but also treatment of arthritis, and particularly in the hip and knee, doing not only to try to preserve joints where we can, 
but also to replace joints that are that have failed mechanically. Tell me about the research that you're doing, in particular interested in that piece about regeneration of tissue, or maybe instead of using artificial tissue, something that's actually from your own body. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. The premise of the field in general, and our work specifically, is that uh, we already, just to live, do a lot of regeneration all on our own. When we put on makeup or shave in the morning, we look at our face in the mirror and it looks pretty much the same from week to week or month to month. But the truth is every two weeks, we have entirely new skin on our face. And every two weeks, we have an entirely new surface of the cornea in our eyes. And every three days, we have an entirely new surface of the lining cells of our mouth and our intestines. And every 10 years or so, we replace half of our skeleton. We heal fractures. So if we have a fracture, new tissue forms to connect those two bones together. We heal wounds. And so there are cells in our body that are capable of responding to the right signal, whether it's an injury or whether it's something that we do as physicians to stimulate new growth, but cells that can respond by dividing, by making daughter cells, and those daughter cells will expand to a certain number and then can differentiate into new tissue. And the, the challenge is that you know, we have four and a half million years of human evolution and 4.5 billion years of evolution of life. Uh, the challenge is to use all of those twists and turns and, and features that have been built into our living systems to, to try to make it better, because it's already been partly optimized. And the question is, you know, how can we try to tweak things and use the tools we have and make it a little bit a bit better. So when you are talking about regenerating tissues or bones inside the human body, are you looking at maybe doing an injection in somebody's body so that they can do it on their own inside their body? Or are you also looking at it like in a Petri dish where you would have stem cells and you could actually grow a new hand or a new leg bone or something like that? Yeah, well, because those cells exist, because we're capable of healing and regenerating new tissues to some extent, a lot of medicine up until now has been using medicines that improve the function of some of the cells that are already there, either the cells that are already differentiated, but in some cases, the cells that can grow and make new tissue. But now that we know that those cells exist, even though they're rare, attention has been turned to the process of finding those cells that we might be able to use, taking them out of the body, concentrating the cells we want, getting rid of cells we don't want, keeping cells that we do want, and then either injecting them back into a, an environment where their work can be facilitated. And this is what we do for the most part in, in bone healing, where it's possible to take cells, for example, out of the bone marrow, get rid of red blood cells, get rid of most of the white blood cells, concentrate and select the cells that can make bone, and then just transplant those into the site where there are appropriate signals already for bone healing, but where bone healing may be delayed because there just aren't enough of those cells around. So we can increase the size of our army at the site where this war is taking place and influence the result by doing so. So that's one method. And then another method is to take the cells out, and because they are capable of growing, I can take a small number of cells and I can expand them in number in the lab, take 
a thousand cells and make them into a million or take a million cells and make them into a billion. And when we do that, it's you know theoretically possible to make improvements on the cells. We can modify them so that they can make different proteins that might be more beneficial. We can increase their numbers and concentrate them in numbers that aren't available to us in nature, but where larger numbers of liver cells in one place or brain cells in one place or skin cells in one place would be beneficial. The challenge is that to transplant them into a place where they can survive and to thrive. And so there's some tricks in doing that. Okay. So let's go back to this example. When I was talking to the surgeon at Akron Children's and they're working on some customized rods for people that have back injuries or maybe scoliosis or something like that. Would it be possible at some point, based on what you know so far from your research, where you could either inject stem cells that have been perhaps stimulated outside of the body back into somebody's spine and help them grow their own new or better vertebrae? Or would it be possible to grow something like that outside of the body instead of like a steel rod, maybe Mm -hmm. a bone that has actually been composed of somebody's own tissue, put that back in their body? Is that within the realm of possibility someday? Yes. I mean, what we can already do, because, you know, at the time of those spine surgeries, we use rods and screws to straighten the spine or to hold the spine in an appropriate position. And we can already transplant cells in a scaffold and place it into the site and enhance bone healing. I personally had a spinal fusion in my back in 2008. And because of our research, two weeks before my surgery, I went and taught my surgeon how to collect bone marrow and how to concentrate it and how to put it in my spine to accelerate healing. And I may have gotten a perfectly good result without that, but I think we increased my chances of a good result by doing that. And then they were able to continue to do that for, I think they're still doing that in their career. Actually, that, that surgeon was retired, but, but again, we've taught other people how to do that. So it's already possible to enhance healing by transplanting cells that the patient already has. And what you're talking about is making whole chunks of tissue or a new bone And so there, it's not always necessary, but you can imagine it's also much more complicated because if I put a lot of cells in one place, they require a lot of help. They require a lot of oxygen. They require a lot of glucose. They require a lot of other things. So it's like, you know, putting a lot of people in one place. If you put a huge number of people into a city suddenly you have to have electricity, you have to have a sewer system, you have to have good water, you have to have a way to get them food. And so there's a lot more to it than just putting a bunch of cells in one place. And so there are really smart people all over the world that are working on this challenge of how do we not only find the right cells and put them into this three-dimensional structure where we might need to make a new liver or a new kidney or a new lung and get them into a milieu where there is a blood supply, where the cells have an attachment and a surface to hold them in the right position where they they won't float around and and rearrange themselves, where they keep the structure that we need. And so every tissue has different requirements. And so it is possible, but at this point in time, the new organs that we're making tend to be very small. But I can tell you there are some good examples. So for example, we have a collaboration with a woman scientist, Doris Taylor, who's in Houston. 
And so for some time, she's been concerned about people with heart failure. And it is true that you can get a heart transplant. You can take a heart from that's a beating heart from somebody who's living today. And if they have died for some reason, but their heart's okay, you can transplant that into somebody else who needs it. But those are hard to come by and it's complicated to get. So Doris's work is built around the idea of taking the structure of a heart that could be from another human, but it could even be from a cow and removing the cells from the cow or removing the cells from the other person and repopulating it with cells that are heart cells, cardiomyocytes, that are specific to the person who needs it. And so she's been quite effective at making small examples of a small heart the size of my fist and removing all the cells, making it dead, but then repopulating it with cells that are capable of beating and then having that heart beat. Now, the hearts she makes don't yet beat strong enough to pump blood very well. They don't necessarily have all the blood supply that would be necessary to transplant them into a person. So it's not a safe thing to do. It's not safer yet than heart transplant of traditional ways. But she and others are making substantial progress in getting cells into an environment where they can survive in larger numbers by not only finding the right cells, and keeping the cells we want and keeping out cells that we don't want, but also putting them in the right milieu, putting them in the right structure. That's really interesting. So when they're building these, at least mini prototype organs, are they using 3D printing techniques or are they using something else, some other kind of growth medium or some other kind of technique? Yeah. Um, so, you know, 3D printing is is a way to assemble a structure by using a little spray jet. It's like a printer. You can imagine, you know, making letters, printing letters onto a page, but then if you print over that again and print over that again and print over that again, you can make three-dimensional structures that rise higher and higher and higher up off the page. And so it's an effective way to make structures of almost any shape and even down to small size openings. So if I wanna design a structure, I can make the right architecture But then, for example, if I want to make a lung, that structure that I create has to be very elastic. It has to be very stretchy. And it has to be able to stretch back and forth over and over and over again, millions and millions of times without breaking so that it can function as a lung. Or as in the case of a heart, it has to be able to contract and squeeze over and over and over and over again. So it's one thing to print a part for your car that has one and only one shape and that has to be just only strong. But it's another challenge to print with a material that is flexible enough and strong enough to serve as a heart or as a kidney or as a lung. But again, we have huge progress being made in biomaterials. And the 3D printing technology enables a tremendous amount of control. And so we have this wave of smart people making new biomaterials, waves of smart people making three-dimensional printing processes, waves of smart people who are working to find the right cells and eliminate the cells we don't want, keep the cells we do want. And as those three technologies merge together, I don't think there's any question that we will have artificial kidneys, artificial lungs. We're certainly working towards three-dimensional heart tissue structures. There are ways to make three-dimensional blood vessels. People have already tried to make three-dimensional tracheas for transplant for people who have tracheal diseases. So none of these are exactly ready for prime time yet. None of them are necessarily 
the thing that you could promise your mother or your husband or your children that will be there for them. But my grandchildren are going to benefit a great deal from these things and perhaps even my children. So what are you working on right now that you're the most excited about? And if people were to hear about it, you could tell them this is coming soon. Anything going on there right now that you'd like to talk about that's new and exciting that may be a reality sooner than later? Yeah. Well, you know, our, our work started with the fact that I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I want to make bone. And so I discovered early in my career, because the world was just realizing this, that there are cells that I can find and that I can culture and that I can measure that are capable of making bone. And so that allowed us to design ways to harvest those cells and concentrate and select those cells. And so the ability to do that exists. What is limiting about those cells is that they can make bone, maybe they can make cartilage, they can make fibrous tissue, maybe they can make fat, but they don't do it all the time and not every cell that can grow in a dish can do all of those things the way I would like them to do. But what we have now is the ability to put cells into culture and to assess them and see, it's like uh, taking a handful of seeds in your garden and throwing them out in the garden. And then you allow the plants to grow, you see what their properties are, and then you can weed out the plants that you don't want, keep the ones that you do want. And so, as, as you can imagine, there is tremendous power in your garden of those kind of decisions. And the same thing exists in the garden of biology. If I want cells that are the best for making bone, we now are having ways that we could take the whole diversity of cells that someone might have in their pelvis and just separate out, not just the ones that can grow, but the ones that might make the best source of cells for making bone or making fat or making cartilage. That's a huge direction that our work and the work of many other people is going in. The second thing that I could bring up, and that is every bit, if not more exciting, is the fact that, as you may have heard of uh, something called induced pluripotent cells, IPS cells. So in 2011, the Nobel Prize was given to uh, Dr. Yamanaka from Kobe in Japan for the observation that he could take cells from you or me, grow them in a dish, expose them temporarily to high levels of four different factors, and get those cells to regress and become more immature back to the state where a cell that started in the skin, in my skin or your skin today, could go on to make heart tissue or could go on to make nerve tissue or go on to make lung tissue, pretty much anything but a placenta. And so that is a tremendous boom in biology to be able to take cells and make personalized care possible by taking cells that you and I already own and creating IPS cells from them and then learning how to make those IPS goes down the track now to make cartilage and to make bone or to make nerve tissue or to make you know cells for Parkinson's disease, nerve tissue that makes dopamine. There are any number of ways that you can imagine using induced pluripotent cells. And so, so there's a large effort there. And, and we're very excited about the, the possibility of taking what we already know about concentrating and selecting cells and then applying this to this new resource, new source of cells, of iPS cells. So here's an example. I'll use something that's going on with me that maybe other people could relate to. I have an injury. I fell on the sidewalk and I tore the labrum around my hip. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so they told me, well, you know, if you were in your early 20s, we might be able to repair it. But mm -hmm. now at your age, the only thing that we'll be able to do is just replace the hip if it ever gets too bad, right? Mm -hmm. So using these kinds of cells you're talking about, maybe someday instead of having to go in and sew that up or replace it, is it possible that you could just someday inject something and it would just grow back? Like it could heal the tear? Possibly. But uh, you can imagine if, if I'm a cell and I get injected into your hip, how do I know exactly where to go? Your, there are parts of your hip that are that are perfectly normal. I don't want new cells going there. Right. I only want cells going where the injury is. And so cells are powerful, but they're not that smart. And so, so in order to use cells in that way, and particularly using cells by injection, we have to have some influence over where the cells go or to make sure that the cells only survive and, and, and then graft where we need them. Because you can also do harm by forming, you know, new tissue in the wrong place. I was there, kind of imagining like a like a cellular duct tape, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there are examples and and you know horrible examples of physicians who have gone past what is reasonable and what is safe and have injected cells. For example, there's a publicized situation where, you know, in an attempt to try to help people with macular degeneration, injections were being done in the back of the eye with cells from bone marrow. And as I told you, some cells in bone marrow know how to make bone. And so they were hoping that the cells would do what they wanted in the back of the eye. But instead of that, they got bone formed. Oh, no. People lost their sight. Oh. And so there was harm done by trying to naively think that the cells you know, know what you want and <laughs> can do exactly what you want, where you want it, when you want it. And these cells, you know, they have a mind of their own and they'll respond to whatever signals are around. Okay, well, but at least at some point in the future, you might be able to crack the code of being able to tell the cells exactly what you want them to do, maybe. Yeah, and that, that's the goal. And then, and, you know, one of the really important things that happened in medicine is that there's a natural governor that, that says, well, just because something's possible doesn't mean that it should be done. So could be done and should be done are two different things. And so there are wonderful organizations, the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy have important sections of their communities that are devoted to not just the technical capability of using cells, but the ethics of using cells. And there are groups, the International Standards Association, the ASBMR, our standards organizations, the FDA, of course, that organize people, discuss standards about, well, how do we know if we have the right thing? How do we know if we can do the same thing over and over again? How do we measure success? How do we detect risk? And, you know, because I can grow cells in a dish and make a cancer cell. I don't want to inject that. How would I know if I had a dish containing a cancer cell before I injected it? And so these are important things that we have to solve before we can make things that are possible safe and go from the could be done to the should be done. All right. Well, that sounds excellent. Is there anything that you'd like to add that maybe I might've forgotten to ask? No, you, you ask, ask wonderful questions. And, you know, they, they, I think the, 
important message that patients should take away is that you can imagine, you know, there are a lot of people out there that want to help. And there are ways in which some of these therapies are currently being offered that inevitably, like any situation where there is are things that could be done, sometimes they're offered in a way that is overly hyped, overly promised. And so, you know, just in the same way that laundry detergent might be marketed in a way that says, oh, this will make everything perfectly better, but it doesn't necessarily always work as you hoped. The same thing is true for cellular therapies. And so it's important to be informed, but also to you know, get second opinions and be skeptical. There's, there's a certain amount of buyer beware. The Food and Drug Administration has relatively limited resources, so they can't necessarily go to every single place where someone is saying something that's not quite true about stem cells and keep them from saying it. So they have focused on trying to protect people like those injections in the eye that, that can hurt people. When they see that, they can jump in, and the FDA will do that immediately, and there are rules to follow that keep people on track. And then, in addition, there's the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission has authority in this space to, to judge whether or not what people are saying about their product, about their therapy, is true or not. And so the Federal Trade Commission has also been involved. And so you will have seen in the last several years, first, a sharp rise in the number of claims and advertisements about stem cell therapies. And, you know, for every kind of problem from diabetes to pain to any number of conditions. And you will have seen also recently a sharp decline in the number of those advertisements because both of these two agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the FDA, have done their job and caught up with some of the false claims that are being made so that the, the patients can get accurate information and not be exposed to overly optimistic promises. So if I was a patient right now and I had some illness and somebody promised me that they could fix it with stem cell therapy, the best thing for me to do would be what? Get another doctor's opinion and then also maybe go to the FTC website or the FDA website or both? You can get a lot of inf good information online, but you can also get a lot of skeptical information online. And so organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, where I'm from, try to, as part of our mission, try to make sure that we provide a resource for patients to get accurate and responsible information about the available therapies and to make those things that are best and, and most effective for our patients available here. But the Mayo Clinic, UCLA, University of Washington, Massachusetts General Hospital, the hospitals in Boston, major medical centers also have a high interest in not only advancing these technologies, but also doing the right thing. Because as a big institution, you have to do both. You have to advance the world but you also have to think critically about what you're going to offer to patients and make sure that you're not going to take them down the garden path of doing something that is maybe exciting for you, but not necessarily the best thing for a patient. That was Dr. George Mushler, who directs the Cleveland Clinic's Orthopedic and Rheumatologic Research Center, Clinical Tissue Engineering Center, and Joint Preservation Center. We also heard from pediatric surgeon and spine center research director at Akron Children's Hospital, Dr. Lorena Flacari. 
Many thanks to both of them for sharing their knowledge and insights into these fascinating aspects of advanced science and technology related to healing both children and adults. And I'm Jean Destro. Thanks for listening. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. This has been This Week in Tech with Gene Destro on WAKR, brought to you by Cartridge World in North Canton. 